It is the Shepherdess at Harmony Farms, where we encourage you to think big, start small, and don't quit. We have as our guest today, Mr. Joel Salatin, a founding father of the regenerative farming movement in the USA and author of 14 books surrounding the topic. Mr. Salatin, welcome. Thank you, Grace. What a delight to be with you. Thank you. Well, I don't know what I was more excited about, talking to you or talking to somebody who understands the struggles of rural Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Okay, primer. So as a primer, just explain generally the difference between conventional farming and what you guys do there regeneratively at Polyface. First of all, I would say when we started to contrast, let's say just orthodox conventional American agriculture with what we do, I would say the first thing is that we build soil rather than reduce soil. So as a result of our being here, we want there to be more soil, not less soil at the end of the day, at the end of a lifetime. Yeah. And uh, as you know, most of American agriculture is working still today at a, at a overall uh, net soil depletion uh, situation. So what we want is more soil. Uh, number two, I would say in general, we want more water in the landscape. We want to hydrate the landscape rather than um, size from sucking out of the stream, the stream going smaller and smaller. What we want is we want to have more water in the, um, in the landscape. We call that increasing the commons, if you will. So more soil, more water. I would say in general, we want more diversity on the landscape. So instead of being a monocrop, a monoculture, a monospecies, what we want is lots of different species, both plants and animals, working symbiotically rather than in a linear reductionist idea of, you know, of, of simplicity and, and singleness of mind. So number four would be, if I have an animal that gets sick, I don't assume that that it's some disease fairies sprinkling dust down onto my farm and making my animals sick. I'm assuming that it's something I've done to break down the wellness, the wellness habitat, the immune system. Now it could be that I chose the wrong animal, you know, genetic weakness. It could be that I crowded them. It could be that I made them unhappy. It could be that I didn't feed them right. It could be that I got them too cold, too hot, too wet, too dry, you know, a million different things. In general, we view sickness as, as simply a report card on our management, not something to vaccinate, medicate, and do a bunch of interventive type things. Number five might be that we view life as biological and not mechanical. The orthodox view in, in Western agriculture is that life is fundamentally mechanical. So we can take some DNA out of here and we can take some genes out of here. And it's essentially, if we can manipulate life uh, like we can a copper fitting or a PVC valve, well, that's all fine. And we believe that life has fundamental distinctive sacredness to it in that there's a reason why a tomato is like a tomato is and a cow is like a cow is and a sunflower is like a sunflower is and those nuances they are designed beyond our understanding right. so we want to respect the pigness of the pig the chickenness of the chicken 
we just want to respect that that phenotypical distinctiveness of the animal as being fundamentally valuable, not only valuable for what we can make it do for us. Mm -hmm. Number six is that the fertility program runs on carbon. So we run a carbon economy, not a petroleum economy. Now, I know that in the pure sense of the term, petroleum is also considered carbon because it's, you know, oil is supposedly old, you know, decayed leaves or whatever. But, but in general, what we want is real-time solar-driven carbon to run our fertility as opposed to chemical fertilizers and centuries-old carbon. We want, we want to have a short chain between the solar energy turned into a plant, turned into microbes in the soil. We want that chain to be as short as possible, not a long chain, you know, which is what most farming does. And uh, if I, I could just finish with number seven, we're just brainstorming here. Number seven might be, we believe that farms should have a lot of people on them, or we should have a lot more farmers as opposed to fewer farmers. Western American agriculture is predicated on the notion that farming is an obsolete, low-paying, drudgery vocation that only C-minus to F-plus students should be able to do. And if you're an A or B student, you should go to town and be a doctor or an attorney or a IT, you know, in your Dilbert cubicle at the end of an expressway. And we believe that fundamentally, land is better cared for, loved, and caressed when there are more people on it who are familiar and, and viscerally intimate with the land's desires and nuances. And so we think that we would actually have a stronger food system, a more secure system, a stronger civilization, actually, if we had more farmers and I'm not saying everybody has to be a farmer. I'm just saying more farmers uh, in general, more farmers to certainly today than we do. Right now in America, we have twice as many people incarcerated in prisons as we have farming. And uh, I would like to at least see that number inverted. <laughs> right. So to double back on that, do you think, would you say from your perspective that regenerative farming doesn't require the continual increase of inputs that conventional farming seems to be. Yeah, yeah, it, it, certainly in general, uh, there's a resource leveraging that happens. Now, that's not to say that you don't have to do some pretty significant capital investment to prime that pump. For example, let's take the water. I'm, I'm a pond guy, man. I mean, every time we get a few thousand dollars, we dig another pond. And we have now, we have 10 miles of, of buried water line that gravity feeds from permaculture style ponds up, up on high ground and gives us 70, 70 PSI water all over the whole place from gravity. No pumps, no electricity, no nothing. Now, you know, that's many thousands of dollars in excavation and in piping to make that happen. But we don't have to worry about electricity. As long as gravity works, we have wonderful, pressurized, clean, gravity-fed water all over the whole farm. And so some of these things take a substantial amount of human capital creativity input to get them going. But the beauty of this is how long does a pipe in the ground last and how long does a pond last? 
you know, hundreds of years. So you make this initial investment and then it just continues to carry on for, you know, a long, long time, as opposed to the chemical farming approach, which is, it's like a factory. It's like input, output, throughput. We like to view the farm more like a great big reservoir where there's all this energy coming in and a real slow leak going out. So the reservoir just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. In conventional farming, it's like an assembly line where material comes in one end, goes out the other, and you don't actually get any buildup of resource. You don't get a buildup of capital inside. It's just a flow-through proposition. You know, you're sort of mining in a sense rather than investing. Certainly, or at least just getting the same out that you put in. You know, it's, it's a flow-through. Yeah. Okay. okay, so second question is, it's two questions that are kind of floating in the mainstream. Uh, is, and it might seem rhetorical based on what we've talked about, but is regenerative agriculture profitable or do regenerative farmers have to exchange significant profit margins in order to make, you know, the sustainable choices? Yeah, well, you're certainly hitting on a, a nub in our movement that there's this, this tension between environment and economy. And if you help the economy, you have to sacrifice the ecology. And if you help the ecology, you've got to sacrifice the economy. There's that kind of tension. And I understand that tension. Our sense is that that is only true if you don't put all of the economics in the equation. One of our favorite phrases is the phrase spin-off costs, uncaptured costs. For example, if we don't use antibiotics, on our chickens. And so we grow a chicken with no antibiotic resistant superbug, for example. Well, then that has consequences in the medical field because now you don't have MRSA, you don't have C. diff, and you don't have superbugs because you haven't developed uh, antibiotic resistance on the farm. So if the conventional farming community had to pay, for example, for the dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico, if they had to pay for the extra water purification that comes from tainted aquifers, it, I mean, I could go on. I think half of all cases of diarrhea are caused by foodborne bacteria. I mean, half, what's a case of diarrhea worth, okay? <laughs> and, and so, so if, if, the, if the industry, if the industry had to pay for all of those uh, ancillary costs, then we would find out that a regenerative food in the total picture is actually cheaper than the cheap food that creates a problem that then has to be fixed some other way. I think it's a pretty amazing thing that in our culture, as smart and creative as we are, we have not figured out how to create in, in gross domestic product We've not figured out how to create a cost to error. <laughs> so, you know, Wendell, Wendell Berry writes about this when he says, what's good about us creates less GDP than what's right about us. In other words, look, if you get married, you live in one house and one person stays home and you have a milk cow and you get by with one car and you don't buy much, that's a wonderful family economy but it doesn't help the GDP. What helps the GDP is if you get divorced 
and move to town and live in two houses. Now you need two cars, you need to go to the psychiatrist because you have mental breakdowns and you probably have to get pharmaceutical drugs because you're under stress because you're divorced and you can't see your kids all the time. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a profound cultural weakness that we cannot capture the true negative costs of error. That's so true. If, if I go out here and dump pesticides in the river and it becomes a Superfund site, the cost of cleanup is not GDP. It's, oh, look, we've got to hire people. We've got to buy gas. We've got to get money. We've got to get, you know, machinery in here. Um, that's, that's an amazing thing. I mean, building a prison actually increases the GDP. That ought to be a negative figure on GDP. So you actually come up with a, with a balance sheet that, that, that honors and appreciates cultural positives as opposed to cultural negatives. So it really takes an enlargement of your perspective, sort of a heart for stewardship, yes. and really a long-term way of thinking. Right, long-term and broad-based, long-term and broad-based. And mm -hmm. that's when regenerative agriculture becomes its most profitable, is thinking in those contexts and understanding that conventional is not cheap as we see it. That's correct. and. What's the cost of lost soil? I mean, <laughs> right now, I mean, right now, as you and I are speaking, every bushel of corn costs us about two bushels of soil. How can you keep doing that? And so, so those costs are, are real. And if you look at, you know, farm prices and ag statistics, you realize that, for example, if related to labor costs and insurance and land costs, if the price of a cow today had kept pace with insurance, wages, land costs, things like that from let's say 1960, today a McDonald's hamburger would cost about $30. Right. Do you think, okay, do you think like with the escalation of inputs that conventional farming requires, do you think a hundred years from now, it will be more expensive to farm conventionally than the person who put in the work today and, and, and did the groundwork today? Oh man, that's the one thing I don't do, Grace, I don't do prophecy. Many of us in this movement, we thought we'd hit the boundary before now, but boy, nature is very resilient. It take a lot of abuse and still, you know, still kind of plug along and, and keep going. So I do think that the proverb, you know, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to end your headed is probably true. And so yeah, here in the United States, you know, we've got you know, supermarkets and all this stuff. And the notion that we could actually turn into a, a beggar food nation is a pretty far stretch, you know, for some people. I think that that's a long way off. I think what would be sooner than us running out of food is running out of health. Hmm. It's already happening. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely already happening. 40 years ago, Americans spent 18% of their income on food and 9% on medical care. Today, it's 18% on medical care and 9% on food. So those two numbers have completely inverted in 30 to 40 years. And of course, COVID is just bringing this into more obvious play. And the fact that there were uh, empty supermarket shelves this spring as all these big, big centralized processing plants, you know, had to shut down for a few days, you know, for the first time in my life, 
I felt a national, a, a literally a cultural aha moment mm-hmm. as people realized, oh, you mean this food system is actually a little bit fail, you know, that it was a, the emperor has no clothes moment. And pretty, that was pretty exciting for those of us who have been wanting to go a different direction. And we had people in our sales building there in uh, April, they said, man, I would have never given you the time of day. But when I went into, you know, Kroger's and saw nothing on the shelves, I said, here we are. And, you know, we're never going back. That's a very uh, exciting thing for, for me. Yeah. I think that we had probably one of the grandest opportunities at a wake up call. And as long as I can remember, so it is good. And, and you have the choice to do things with that wake up call and go back to sleep or you can do something. Yeah. So. Well, I, I, I can remember for a lot longer than you can remember. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think you would battle. All right. So the second question floating around in the mainstream is, is regenerative agriculture scalable? Sure. Is it scalable? Yeah. And, uh, and it certainly is. Uh, this, this doesn't have anything to do with scale. It has to do with management. And a, a lot of people would consider us a, a fairly large farm. I mean, according to the USDA, we're a large farm. You know, we'll jump over $3 million this year. So, I mean, we're running a thousand head of cattle. You know, so these principles, they scale. But beyond that, I would like to just um, touch you, Grace, with the idea that rather than uh, then scaling up as a, as a single entity, the way we see scaling is not necessarily scaling up, uh, scaling up as an entity, but scaling up through duplication. And there are two ways to scale. One is to scale individually, you know, build an empire. And the other is to scale with way more participants. Right. Either one of those works. So, when you say straight up, explain that a little bit, build that out. All right. So, so for example, um, let's say that I want to have a chicken processing facility. Okay. I want to do chicken processing. Well, the current model is I want, you know, I want to have this processing facility that does 100,000 chickens an hour with 3,000 employees in, in a central location. All right. Okay. Well, we would rather see thousands and thousands of outfits that would do maybe a thousand or two thousand chickens a day very small in every community right so you do the same number of chickens it's just that rather than bringing them to 50 mega facilities in the nation you bring them to a hundred thousand community-based facilities in the nation for processing. I mean, that's an example, but the same thing can be done, you know, for all these. I mean, people say, oh, pastured, pastured chickens. How could you possibly feed the planet on pastured chickens or, or pastured pigs? Well, I was in Lincoln, Nebraska a few years ago, and that to feed Lincoln, Nebraska, which is not a huge city, to, to feed Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, I think I figured at the time that it would take 100 or 200 farmers like us you know, within driving distance of, of Lincoln, Nebraska, could that be done? Absolutely. It can be done everywhere in the country. It would just take more people in the countryside. And I think that would be a very healthy thing to actually reverse the urbanization of the country and, and bring some of these urbanites back to the country to actually participate on our ecological womb. So it's, again, it's sort of a matter of, of 
the initial perspective you want it's the decentralization it's the understanding that sustainability is the goal not centralization really yeah you could call this a democratization of the food system if you wanted to be a little bit you know politically correct but yeah I, i prefer the idea of duplication rather than empire building right uh, so rather, one than, is a, it, rather than polyface ending up a 3000 acre farm you'd rather yes. see a hundred different you know 300 acre farms like yours yes or smaller whatever it be yeah now that 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 being said uh there are economies of scale the t- phrase economies of scale many people in the kind of the the homesteading movement they don't like even that phrase they want to argue all that's the industrial phrase. That's the, you know, that's the Cargill phrase. But the fact is, there are economies of scale. Uh, you know, just because we raise 100,000 chickens does not mean we're a Purdue, Cargill, or Tyson. <laughs> There's a lot of room for what I call mid-scale, where you get economies of scale. So it's, it's not so tiny that it's inefficient, but it's also not so big that you have pathogen problems. You know, those are the two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. All right, that's good. That's good groundwork. So from there, you've told us we can farm. We believed it. We're starting to farm. Now, where do we get our customers? Customers. All right. First of all, make a list of your tribe. And so if you were going to find people in your community who thought like you, you know, where would you go? Mm -hmm. And generally, people like you and I, you know, we wouldn't find those people down buying food at the Sheets filling station. We wouldn't find them down at the uh, Walgreens pharmacy getting, um, you know, a bunch of uh, medications. Generally, where you and I would find customers is we would find them in the wellness community, the CrossFit gym, the Weston A. Price Foundation chapter, the acupuncturist, the chiropractor, you know, all the quacks, you know, the iridologist, the herbalist, the naturopath, the functional medicine doctor. I mean, think about wellness community. That's where you're starting. And so you have to identify your tribe so that you don't just waste your time on people who are eating at McDonald's right. and, and zero in on, on people who kind of believe, kind of believe like you do. Right. That's good. Yeah, that is that was one of the first things I did was I went to those closest to me and that provided for me personally enough of a foundation to say okay I can get out there and I can buy this many and so on and so forth so and then past that at Polyface you know in those first years did you do farmers markets did you hit the streets one-on-one how, how did you get that foundation that started Sure. Well, we had three approaches. The first one was we gave samples. Samples work. There are two ways to get a customer for us, for us. Mm-hmm. One is they need to see it or they need to taste it. You need to see it or taste it. So we either need to get them to the farm or get them to eat it and preferably both. But if you only have to pick one, you pick one or the other. So we, we gave a lot of samples and we still do that. We, we still give samplers all the time. Because when, when people taste it, eat it, they, ooh, this is different. This is not, you know, this is not from the supermarket. So samples, number two, we did educational programs. So, uh, you know, every community has 
all sorts of organizations that meet. You know, we used to have Ruritan and, you know, Kiwanis clubs, they're kind of gone now, but they've given way to other kinds of groups like CrossFit, CrossFit gyms. There are all sorts of groups in a, and they meet, you know, you know, environmental groups, okay? And they meet and they're always looking for an interesting program. And so I put together, I mean, in those days, it was a, it was a, you know, Kodak carousel with a, you know, a slide projector. But today it would be a PowerPoint, put together a PowerPoint on how we can heal the planet with pasture-based livestock. Mm-hmm. And, and people just warmed up to it. They, they just loved it. And then, of course, at the end, it was a, it was a soft sales pitch. Uh, if you want to participate, you know, you, you, here's where you can. And so we did that kind of educational outreach. And then the, the third thing we did was what I call evangelism. And, and that is where we, we rewarded, we didn't advertise anything. We rewarded people who spread word of mouth for us and created that buzz. And so it was examples, education, and evangelism. And our culture, uh, Grace, our culture is starved for appreciation. It doesn't take much gratitude from somebody to get whole society now. And it doesn't take much, if you walk in a store and they act like you're really important, Right. You're going to send more people to that store, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there and done that, huh? <laughs> so has your model changed, though? These are the foundational things. And as you've grown and the times have changed, have you guys changed your model? And what are the major ways you've done that? Yeah, certainly times have changed. I mean, the internet has changed everything. And so now we have our Instagram and our website and all that stuff and blog. And and beyond that, we've actually put in a children's playground here on the farm, you know, teeter-totters, tire swings, corn box, living teepee with, you know, Kentucky Wonder Beans growing up poles kids can get in and mm-hmm. that sort of thing and real uh, picnic tables so families can can come and eat the, the point is that w- we have to become a destination place for, for people to, to come out and enjoy the farm you know as a related issue here uh, there are a lot of dollars grace that are being left on the table right now okay all right um so uh, you cut out, you, you cut out on we're leaving a lot of dollars yes on the table yes okay yeah uh so we're leaving a lot of dollars on the right now in the entertainment recreation industry and so uh and so what we're seeing is a real neat but but people people want to want to do things they want to go places and so if we have a farm that is beautiful that has animals that are fun and, and docile there are few things that are as you know as enjoyable for an urban child than you know than picking up a chick or uh, picking up a baby lamb or whatever. And, uh, and these are invaluable memories and experiences uh, for folks. And so if we can get them to leave their dollars with us, whether you do a hay ride and charge for it, or you know, uh, a barbecue and charge for it, or have a little mini concert and charge for it, the point is to make our farms a focal point of gathering and fellowship in a time when people don't want to go to the city. And it's an element of diversification beyond adding more animals to your farm. Yes, agritourism, listen, a lot of times the the value, the value of the the emotional memory 
that value is actually more valuable than the T-bone steak or the, the pound of hamburger. Right. I mean, my siblings and I still talk about going to the cider mill, you know, when we were eight and 10 years old and we remember that. So yeah, that's right. really, really true. Okay. So, so bringing it to diversification, you know, it's polyface, the farm of many faces. Right. Would you say that diversity is key to profitability on farm or can somebody make it just doing sheep or just doing beef, just doing chickens? All right. The principle is you need to be the one that controls the sale. Then you own that customer. And of course, customers want, they want more variety. They want more choice. And whether your venue is a farmer's market stand, an internet shopping cart, or a on-farm place, they want to have more options when they come, whatever your venue is. And so the hard part in marketing is getting the customer. Once you have the customer and they're loyal, they want to know what else you have. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to get uh, a $200 customer with another product than it is to, to have a $100 customer and make that $100 customer with another $100 customer. What I'm getting at is you don't have to be the one that grows everything. So if you come to our, our farm store right now today, you will see a whole pile of products from kombucha to soup to homemade cosmetics, uh, soap honey. I mean, you'll see all sorts of things, milk, cheese that we don't do on our farm, but they are local food crafters Mm. that when a person buys from us, they can tap in to this whole greater community of food craft and fiber craft. So the the goal here is to, as much as possible, become that one-stop shop for your local artisan food craft and fiber craft community. And since you are the conduit, the, the brand, the sales conduit, you own the customer. Right. And so that customer who might be $25 customer with just beef becomes a $200 customer with beef, cheese, kombucha, probably like some type of shirt. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's you. Yeah. That's your case for diversification. And then, you know, the person that's aiming at, you know, their first $50,000 a year on farm, they'll need that many less customers if they do have that diversity. Hmm. That's right. It's a lot easier to find a hundred customers that will spend a thousand dollars with you than a thousand customers who will spend a hundred dollars with you. That's, and that is a true case for diversity right there in a way that's really easy to understand. Yeah, it is. Whether whether you produce whether you produce it all or you produce as much as you can and you work with other people to produce it, yeah, the, the, the diversity is a is a big deal. It mm-hmm. sure is. Do you think that we as producers need to be as much educators as anything with respect to educating people on why they should buy this way? Why they should buy our stuff? Well, of course, you know, Simon Simon Sinek uh, wrote the book um, Starting with Why. And, um, you know, he has the, the concentric circles. You know, every, everybody knows what they do. Some people know how they do it. Very few people know why. But that's what your customer wants. Your customer doesn't want to know. They don't, know, they want, they don't want to know what you do. And they don't really care wh- how you do it. What they really want to know is why. And they need to know why. Here, here's, here's a critical thing, Grace. They need to know why in their context. 
not your context. See, we farmers, we get all excited about the why of what we do. I'm building soil. I'm making happy animals. I'm, you know, creating carbon. I'm blah, 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 all this stuff. Well, the customer doesn't care about any of that stuff. She wants to know, how are you going to make me have healthy kids? Exactly. How are you going to eliminate my doctor's appointment? That's kids. How are you going to get, how are you going to make it easy for me to get supper on the table when I don't come home from work till five o'clock? So all of our messaging and marketing messaging, and, and I, I'm going to confess, this, this is the hardest <laughs> marketing thing for me to do. I actually have to sit down. You almost have to get into a, you know, into a yoga pose, you know, okay, I'm going to become my customer, you know, and, and you, you have, you have to think about the life and the thought process of your customer, put yourself in her shoes and notice I'm using her. All of our customers are all she's and hers. And, and I got to put myself in her, in her context because I've got to meet her needs. Yeah. She wants to know why should I, I buy from you and not somebody else. Right. Well, it's because I can provide you better nutrition. I can buy, provide you a better taste, happier children, uh, you know, whatever. Right. There's so much emphasis on sharing within the marketing realm on sharing your story, but it really kind of becomes about the customer story to sell the product. Really, you need to get engaged with what's going on and what their needs are. So their story, not ours. Right. So much. I mean, you know. Well, uh, our our story, our story needs to intersect their need. Okay. And 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 if if my story, if my story does not intersect their need, then we're 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 not, we're not relevant. We're not relevant. The only way you get relevant is is for me for me to meet their need. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, you're just entertainment. You don't sell. You know. That's right. You know. That's right. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we would like to think, we would like to think that people want to see more soil on the planet, right. but that's pretty far down. Pretty far, they really want to just see, they just want to see food on the table and happy kids. Right. That's very, very, that's golden. All right. So would you agree that occupational regenerative farming is a marathon? How? Would you encourage stamina in those who are either just starting out or are in their first five years? Oh, what a great question. That is a great question. All right, so stamina. So there's another question related to this that I get asked all the time, and that is uh, going, looking back, if you could change one thing, yeah, what would you change or what would you do differently? And so, so um, my answer to that is, that I would not think so independently for so long. We farmers, we farmers tend to be uh, pretty independently minded, you know, hermit. Um, I'm going to do it myself. We don't feel like we can pay anybody else to do it. And so, so I've, I've got to do all this. And what happens then is that we end up, we end up doing a lot of things that we're not good at, that we're not good at. And, and we end up being very inefficient because we're doing things we're not good at. And of course, for most farmers, this is marketing. Most farmers are not good marketers. Uh, in fact, most farmers don't even like people. Okay. So if you happen to be a farmer 
if you happen to be a farmer who likes people, um, you're in like the, in the top 10%, okay? You're in the top 10%. You're already, you know, uh, weird. All right. So what I'm getting at here is that you want to be able to, to, to bring to yourself partners. If you're familiar with the business book, uh, Strengths, Strengths Finder, Strengths Finder is all about instead of trying to overcome your weaknesses, right. instead leverage your strength. And so what you do is you, you make a list, make a list of what you are really good at, what you like to do. There, there's a kind of a, a universe of three things here, what you love, what you know, and much of our, our, uh, our objective in life is to try to spend more and more time where those three universes intersect. See, the problem is most people are good at things they don't actually like. You know, 80% of Americans hate their job, all right? So you're really skilled at something you're not even, you don't even like. Okay. And so, so the point is identify that sweet spot for you. And then you're looking for partners. You're looking for partners who can come and fill in those, those weak spots because, because they will, their sweet spot will be different than your sweet spot. And when you let them leverage their sweet spot and you leverage yours and you come together that's when one plus one equals five. And, and that's what we're looking for here. And so if I, if I could say one thing to beginning farmers, it is don't be so cotton picking independent. Um, be quick to ask for partners and helps and, 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 and part, uh, not formal partnerships, but, but handshake partnerships and, and things where you can come together and share risks and, and, um, you know, if you're if you're not good at welding, we'll we'll find a good welder and trade him a chicken. You, you know, um, uh, and, and 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 that that partnership, the relational stuff, is, um, is is so is so powerful, so so important. So I, you cut out a bit on the three strengths. You said what you love, what you know, and what you're good at. Is that what you said? Yeah. That's right. That's okay. right. Yeah. What you love, what you love, what you know, and what you're good at. The talk speaks of knowledge, skill, and passion. Mm -hmm. And where knowledge, skill, and passion intersect, that's your life sweet spot. Mm. So that, and that's just a general tip for avoiding burnout even. I mean, yes, because that's yes. a real thing. Yeah, no. That it is. And you, you generally don't burn out at something that you really, really love. You yeah. burn out on the edges, out on the edges of having to do the things that, you, that you're not good at and don't like in order to spend a little bit of time doing the stuff that you really like. Right. Okay. And that's where your burnout occurs. It's out on those edges. Yeah. Right. All right. So we are coming to the end here. And before you leave... Are you optimistic about the future of regenerative farming in the USA? Yes, I'm very optimistic about it. I not not only do I think it's the answer, I think it's the only real answer, you know, long term. Now, you know, when our society will begin to recognize that, uh, I don't think anybody knows right now. But uh, absolutely, God's God's design and God's principles for how this whole ecosystem is supposed to work. The cleverness of the human mind is not going to overcome. We can cheat, we can cheat for a while, but eventually, eventually creation is going to exact its balance sheet. And when that happens, 
God's principles will be the ones that will stand the test of time. They always have and they always will. Right. And so that's where we have to. Yeah. Amen to that. One more thing before I say goodbye. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, okay. I'm so I have here. an idea mm -hmm. for the three M's for success on pasture, right? Okay, mowing, mobbing, moving. Yep. Okay, you should add a fourth one and it's yep. marketing. How do you feel? Ah. Love it. Ah, yeah, that's fair enough. A book about it, just quote me, okay? Okay, I'll, and I'll be sure to, I'll be sure to, 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 to uh, credit you in okay. it. Okay, yes. thank you. Well, sir, I do not take your time for granted. Thank you so much for taking an hour and talking to me. Oh, you're welcome, and I'm, I'm delighted. You're a joy to talk to. This is The Shepherdess signing off. Thank you guys for listening and for more content surrounding small-scale regenerative farming for profit, please visit us at www.harmonyfarms.blog and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter there.